0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, let's go ahead and turn to 1 uh, Corinthians. Uh, go ahead and turn to chapter 11, because that's where we'll, we'll start tonight. So last week we, uh, we wrapped up uh, verses 37 to 40 which um, actually come into play as we'll uh, talk tonight. And as we wrapped up the the chapter, then we moved to uh, consider this question of what is the nature of tongues and prophecy, and then the related question as to whether tongues and prophecy are still uh, normative or practiced or, or operating in the church today. And uh, as we did that, what I did is um, I would put a chart together a number of years ago that I made available, which you couldn't see, but I provided it for you tonight. And there's, there's two basic positions on the gifts of the Spirit. Now, when I say gifts of the Spirit, understand that what we're focused on is what could be called the sign gifts or revelatory gifts. And those would include prophecy and tongues with uh, interpretation of tongues. And so there's two main schools of thought on, on these gifts. One is that they these gifts, like the apostolic ministry itself, was temporary. Um, There are no more capital A Apostles anymore because the capital A Apostles fulfilled their mission and their purpose in the foundation of the church, and there were certain sign gifts in which divine revelation was given. Those gifts are also temporary because the uh, canon of Scripture is complete, God's revelation in his son is complete, and so therefore, there's no longer uh, the, the church is no longer dependent on those gifts for revelation. That position is called cessationism. Uh, the other position is that the uh, that all of the gifts continue um, in uh, just continue on. And th- there's different ideas as to why they continue. Some would argue that they've always been present through the course of church history. Others would say that uh, there's some sort of um, latter rain or um, end times outpouring of the spirit uh, in which uh, these ministries or gifts are revived. And then we made the distinction that, and that view, by the way, that things continue, is, of course, just called continuationism. And we made a distinction that there are two kinds of cessationists, right? There's a fool, which they believe everything has absolutely ceased. So, and there's not very many of these uh, folks, but there are some. Uh, so even the idea of demon possession, casting out demons, um, uh, divine healing, and uh, miracles are no longer uh, in this present age. Then there's the partial cessationist, and that is um, not everything has ceased. And in fact, it's what the, the best way to say it is that some of these gifts are no longer normative for the church. And the reason why normative is an important term is because there's a recognition that under certain circumstances, um, let's say in a missions setting, um, uh, an unreached people group without the scriptures in their language, God is obviously free to do um, supernatural things to communicate the gospel. Um, but the partial uh, cessationist view basically says that the sign gifts, the revelatory gifts, are no longer um, normative for the church. The um, the continuationists are also, in a sense, divided into two camps. You have the, the um, uh, full continuationists who would see apostles today, um, uh, prophets. The Word of God is continuing. There's continuing divine revelation that actually would be on par with the Scripture. Um, and, of course, the irony is, is that when we think about that, um, those, those groups actually would be like Roman Catholicism, Latter-day Saints, where they would have living apostles, right? So in Roman Catholicism, you have uh, apostolic succession so that the, the, the pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. He's the bishop of bishops. He's the bishop of Rome who actually fills Peter's apostolic seat, um, when he speaks ex cathedra, that's divine revelation. So back in 1850-whatever, when the Pope said Mary was uh, bodily assumed into heaven, um, th- then that was divine revelation. That was just true, as true as any scripture. Uh, Mormonism does the same kind of thing. Um, those aren't usually the groups that we think of when we think of a full continuationist. Um, Really groups like uh, the New Apostolic Reformation, Bethel, um, those kinds of groups where you have apostles who speak authoritatively, um, uh, ongoing, um, all kinds of gifts and, and things that go beyond what the Scripture says. That would be the full continuationist position. But then you have people that are more uh, sort of partial, and um, that is they don't believe that there's capital A apostles anymore, but they think that there's prophecy and tongues and so forth. So we went over all of that last week, and so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to uh, tediously look at the gift of prophecy, all right? And I say tediously because I want you to have a a feel for these New Testament texts before we start talking about the different views, all right? So I'm going to try my best to keep my comments as minimal as possible, but if you start by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about prophecy in 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, it's in the context of men and women and head coverings. So in 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 3, he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. Now, by the way, if you want to go back and listen to the lessons from from this chapter, go ahead. This is uh, obviously very complicated. Um, The women are to actually cover their heads because of the angels. And then if you just go down to um, uh, a little bit later in the text, uh, you see, let's see, where am I? If you go back down to verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And so there's this, um, there's this uh, uh, situation going on in Corinth where men and women are praying and prophesying. No reason to think, actually, that the praying and prophesying is taking place in any other context than a gathering for worship. And so even though Paul doesn't define praying and prophesying Praying obvious, prophesying is not, uh, but it seemed to be going on uh, regularly in the Corinthian church. So in chapter 12, he gives a list of gifts. This list is not exhaustive. Verse 8: To one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit and to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. And so, as I mentioned when we went through 1 Corinthians 12, Paul does not give, actually, any attention in 1 Corinthians 12 to defining any of these gifts. And the reason is, is because he's, he's not doing an exposition of the gifts, He's, he's giving an exhortation to the unity of the body. It's the same spirit that gives diversity of gifts. He just lists these. And, of course, prophecy is right there in the middle, and, or right there at the end. And then at the end of chapter 12, verse 28, Paul says, and God is appointed in the church, and then notice the way he delineates this, first apostles, second Prophets. Third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? What's the implied answer? No, they're not. Uh, All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? And so Paul gives, uh, now this passage is important because he sort of gives a Uh, A hierarchy, right? So first, apostles, then prophets, okay? Um, Chapter 13, verse uh, 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And so, now Paul's speaking with some hyperbole in these verses and chapter 13. But notice if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries. Well, nobody knows all mysteries except God. So it's hyperbole. But the idea of the prophet is somebody who understood mysteries. Mysteries, by the way, are not things that are concealed, but things that are revealed. Okay. But, and then all knowledge. And again, nobody has all knowledge except God, but here are two things that are connected with prophecy. That is, knowing a mystery and having knowledge, okay? Um, At the end of chapter 13, verse nine, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And so, Paul actually puts the gift of prophecy into a category where, um, where it is uh, partial. Okay? We prophesy, notice, impart. Okay? Th- that is imperfectly. Now that doesn't mean necessarily we prophesy error, but what it means is that what's communicated through prophecy, whatever that may be, is a part of this present age, which is partial and which we see things dimly. All right? So in other words, um by the way, Paul's point at the end of chapter 13 is is to say that um that, that the gifts are temporary. There's coming a time when they're going to end. and When the perfect comes, that is probably the perfect state that's introduced by the, the, the second coming of Jesus. Um, the, the, there's not going to be a single gift that needs to continue. But what will continue will be love. And so you're to pursue love. Um, pursue love as you pursue the gifts. And then what Paul does as he moves into chapter 14, he actually begins to talk about How do you pursue love to the body? Well, you have to seek their edification. If you're going to seek their edification, then you should seek to actually prophesy as opposed to speak in tongues, right? So uh, verses uh, four to six, Paul says, one who speaks in in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church, okay? So just kind of keep a little mental list here uh, for a second. So prophecy is for the edification of the church. Oh, I actually should have backed up to verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. All right? So this is what prophecy does, is it edifies, it exhorts, it consoles. Um, The one who prophesies edifies the church, verse 4. I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. Greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he uh, interprets so that the church may be uh, receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you by way of revelation or knowledge or prophecy and teaching? Now, I think that, uh, and I brought this out and we went through it, I think that what you have is sort of a little chiastic structure. Revelation goes with prophecy, knowledge goes with teaching, and so prophecy is is some kind of revelation that edifies, exhorts, and comforts or consoles, all right? You skip down to um, verses 24 and 25, Paul says, and we, we went through this recently, so, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. So there's something about the prophetic message that is convicting, all right? Uh, as he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face, worship God, declaring that God is certainly Among you. And so you start to kind of put these little pieces together in terms of what prophecy was. Okay. And then uh, you go down to verse 29. uh, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, The first one must keep silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So notice you have people that are prophesying, They're prophesying one by one. Something happens in the course of that where a revelation is made to one of the prophets there's there's something about that that then supersedes the one who is prophesying. Right. So in other words, if you, if you kind of think about what Paul's presenting here, there is um, there is a sense where uh, if if the Lord brought something to one of the prophets at that moment, then that actually took precedent over what the others were saying, all right? And so, uh, but notice again, prophecy results in learning and exhortation, all right? Verse 39, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner, all right? So that's, that's prophecy in 1 Corinthians. We've actually expounded all of those texts But just kind of keep in mind what what prophecy looks like as Paul's described it in these passages. Now, 1 Corinthians is not the only place where prophecy is mentioned. Romans chapter 12, this is short, so let me just just read it to you. Uh, 12.6, Paul says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, And then notice the NAS actually expands this. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And then here, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. So if you have the gift of prophecy, you're to exercise that. Now, here's the interesting thing is there's one of two ways that you can take Romans 12.6. One is, according to the proportion of his faith, that is, he's only to prophesy in so far as his, somehow his faith permits him or allows him or whatever. Um, I, I think that this passage probably means that he is to prophesy according to the, the standard of the faith, or what we would call later in church history, the uh, the analogy of the faith. That is, his prophetic message must be consistent with the standard of the faith, that faith which has been uh, delivered once for all to the saints. The next passage uh, is Ephesians, and Ephesians actually is really, really crucial. And so there's going to be three passages in Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, verses 19 and 20 so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And then here it is. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay. Now just down in chapter three, Paul says, uh, verse four, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight "...into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it is now, been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit." Okay? So, Paul says in 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then in chapter 3 he talks about this mystery being made known now okay not actually back back then in redemptive history but now and it's been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the holy spirit and then one last one in ephesians ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so Christ gives gifts to his church. He gave the gifts of apostles. So the apostles, apostleship is a gift, but the man, the apostle that has that gift is a gift to the church. Same thing with prophets. The gift is given to the person who's identified as the prophet. The prophet is a gift to the church, all right? Now, all of that's fine and good, but we actually have a book where we see prophecy in action, all right? So in the book of Acts. And so there's a few passages, and by the way, uh, I know this is a little tedious, but once we kind of get these passages under our belt, uh, then we will uh, see how they uh, fit together. So day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, all right, uh, verse 16. So Peter, of course, says it's not drunk. It's only, uh, you know, it's only the third hour of the day. And then uh, verse 16, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, it shall be in the last days. God says that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. All right? So your sons, so by the way, this is from Joel two twenty eight and 29. And Peter on the day of Pentecost basically says what you're seeing, this phenomenon that's happening in front of you, It's pouring out of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, and so the people are understanding in their own language, this that you see is that which was prophesied by Joel. In other words, this is a fulfillment. What you're seeing on the day of Pentecost is a fulfillment of Joel 2, 28 and 29, which says that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Okay, so you go through the book of Acts and you get to chapter 11 and verse 27. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Okay? So, what can you deduce from this passage regarding the gift of prophecy? Well, sometimes, sometimes prophecy includes the foretelling. Of an event that has not yet happened, okay? He said there was going to be a famine, and then, of course, in the days of Claudius, there was a famine. All right. Now, remember Agabus because we're going to run into him again. Chapter thirteen, verse one. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and uh, Manain, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, and they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, now, how do we think that the Holy Spirit said what he's about to say? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, and then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. So what is reasonable to conclude in Acts 13, and that is they're giving themselves to prayer and fasting. In the assembly, you had prophets and teachers, and the Holy Spirit said. How did the Holy Spirit say it? In all likelihood, through one of the prophets. And the church at Antioch recognized that 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 word set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, was a word from the Holy Spirit. All right? Okay. So uh, skip on over to uh, Acts uh, 21. And this is, as you will see, this is where things get really interesting. Now... Before I read to you Acts 21, I want you just to look at Acts 20 for just a quick second. So Paul is speaking to the elders at, from Ephesus. They gather at Miletus to meet Paul. And Paul says in Acts 20, 22, And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit Solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Okay. So, how do you think the Holy Spirit is actually testifying to Paul in every city? Well, probably through prophets. Okay. Doesn't say explicitly, but what is the Holy Spirit telling Paul? And that is, you are going to Jerusalem where bonds and affliction await you. Okay. All right. Keep that in mind. Now, chapter 21. So Paul's getting ready to sail off. Verse 4. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Holy Spirit, or through the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. Okay? Now, I, I need you to just like mentally file verse four for a second. All right, so uh, go ahead and skip uh, down to verse um, verse ten. Oh, by, by the way, just actually, verse eight is is interesting. On the next day, we left, came to Caesarea, entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters, who were prophetesses. Okay. Now, verse ten as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus, so we already know Agabus, came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles." When we, so Luke's including himself, when we heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we felt, fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. right? So let me just, let me just paint this for you quickly. In Acts 20, what does Paul say? The Holy Spirit's been testifying to him that he's going to go to Jerusalem where he will be bound and suffer affliction. Okay. That's been the word, right? Agabus comes along and Agabus takes Paul's belt. By the way, this is this is totally a, a, a prophet thing to do, right? You read the prophets. They did all kinds of weird stuff, right? Um, and so Agabus takes the belt, ties himself up with it, and he says, the person who owns this belt is going to be bound in Jerusalem. Okay? Well, that's what Paul's already said back in chapter 20, verses 23 and 24 the disciples there's two things in this in this chapter that are that are fascinating one later in the chapter after agabus's prophecy what are they what are the disciples saying don't go don't go right so They draw a conclusion from the prophecy. Suffering and affliction and bonds uh, await Paul in Jerusalem. What is their natural response to Paul whom they love? Don't go. Now, does Paul entertain not going for a minute? No. Why, Why does Paul not entertain not going? Because the Holy Spirit's already told him this is what's going to happen and this is what awaits you. And so Paul understands that this is the plan of God for him as the Holy Spirit's revealed it to him. The interesting part of the passage is verse 4. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, before we talk about how this passage plays out in the different views, I I hope you at least appreciate the difficulty that is, is raised by this. The Holy Spirit says, you're going to Jerusalem and await bonds and affliction. Agabus says, you're going to Jerusalem and awaiting bonds and affliction. The disciples respond to that prophecy by saying, don't go. But in verse 4, they're begging Paul, and here's the phrase, through the Holy Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. So what does that little phrase mean? They were doing that through the Holy Spirit. You do understand that, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but you do understand that if you take Acts twenty-one four to be the disciples prophesying to Paul not to go to Jerusalem, you have a huge problem because you end up having the Holy Spirit saying two different things to Paul, okay? So, so just keep that in mind, all right? So those are the passages. Uh, we aren't are going to look at uh, the book of Revelation, which mentions prophecy a few times. That's good enough. So those are the New Testament texts on prophecy. So what are the different views of prophecy? So if we can go to, uh, go ahead and go to the next one, Nathan, uh, the next one after that. Okay. So prophecy uh, is preaching. Okay. This is the first view. What is prophecy? Prophecy is just preaching. Okay. Now, John Calvin, actually, this was his view. And I have a quote up there. Don't know if you can read it or not. Calvin says, Hence, prophecy at this day in the Christian church is hardly anything else than the right understanding of Scripture, the right understanding of Scripture, and the peculiar faculty of explaining it, inasmuch as all the ancient prophecies and the oracles of God have been completed in Christ and his gospel. So for Calvin, the idea of prophecy was just this idea of having extraordinary wisdom and insight into the Word of God and a peculiar aptitude in, in the ability to explain it and and to grasp the immediate need of the church okay. so for him that was prophecy, which was just you, you could you could think of it this way it was a spirit empowered proclamation of the Word in which uh, uh, wisdom and insight is given into the word and the one who's gifted with the gift of prophecy actually has uh, a, a sensitivity uh, to what the church needs at any given time. Okay. So it's not, it has nothing to do with direct revelation. It actually has to do with taking a passage of scripture and preaching it in a way that is peculiarly, relevant and wise and applicable, okay? Um, William Perkins, who is in a sense sort of the the father of Puritanism, wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying. And what is prophesying for Perkins? What is the book The Art of Prophesying? It's just a book on preaching. And uh, he spends a tremendous amount of time on application, how do you apply it to young people? How do you apply it to old people? How do you apply it to saved people? How do you apply it to lost people? How do you, uh, How do you apply it to sick people? How do you apply it to prosperous people right and so he's got this whole uh, this whole treatise, the art of prophesying." but for Perkins, prophesying is just actually just preaching the word very much in the way that Calvin talked about well here's here's the problem is that by the way, I have a uh, uh, incredible respect for Calvin and for Perkins both. Preaching does, in fact, rely on a passage of Scripture, but there's nowhere in the New Testament that would indicate that New Testament prophecy is simply an exposition of the Scripture. In fact, prophecy in the New Testament does, in fact, seem to be connected to some sort of revelation, not scriptural revelation, but revelation granted by the Spirit, all right? Now, that brings us to the second view. And uh, the second view would be something like this. Um, prophecy is communicating a revelation from God. Okay? So somehow, and, and of course, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible rarely, rarely actually ever talks about how Uh, revelation is uh, mediated or communicated to the prophet himself. But this view of prophecy would basically say, so prophecy is actually communicating not a text of scripture, but a revelation from God. Okay. And so the revelation is both spontaneous and supernatural. Okay. So so Agabus actually does stand as an example here where uh, the Holy Spirit revealed something to him and then he spoke that revelation. Okay? It was both spontaneous and it was supernatural. And so uh, this view would look at what happens in the New Testament, a New Testament prophet, as being equivalent to what happened in the Old Testament with an Old Testament prophet. In other words, no no basic difference between what Elijah and Elisha did and what a New Testament prophet did. And so uh, Richard uh, Blaylock gives this definition of prophecy, and I think this is helpful. It is defined as a miraculous act of intelligible communication, rooted in spontaneous divine revelation, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which... Results in words that can be attributed to any or all members of the Godhead and therefore must be received by those who hear or read them as absolutely binding and true. Okay? And so this is, um, uh, in a sense, sort of a historical view of what prophecy is. Now, by the way, this view of prophecy, a revelation that comes from God, and then is spoken, communicated in a way that it is authoritative and infallible, that, that idea also then has a corollary. And that is, if there is such a thing as a true prophet, then there's such a thing as a false prophet. And what makes a false prophet a false prophet? What was it in, uh, in the Old Testament there, there were explicitly two things in the book of Deuteronomy that qualified a person as a false prophet. One, you can see this in Deuteronomy 13 and 18. If they prophesied something and it didn't come to pass, that was a sign of a false prophet. The other sign of the false prophet was that they led people away from the true worship of God. So the idea of prophecy in this view is that God brings the message, the revelation, the person speaks it. He speaks it in a way in which it is authoritative because it's a word from God and it is infallible, All right? Now, that, um, that brings us to the third view. And uh, this, is, uh, this is by far the most interesting Um how many of you, I know there's only like 10 of us, eight of us here, but how many of you have ever read anything from Wayne Grudem? Yeah. Yeah. So Wayne Grudem is really, um, just wonderful, um, reformed theologian. Okay. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Wayne Grudem. Um, Sam Storms, Does that name sound familiar? Sam Storms. Um, Uh, John Piper, (laughs) you better at least know that name. Um, These guys would all hold to this view. This view is first articulated by Wayne Grudem uh, in what ended up being his PhD dissertation uh, at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I want to present it as fairly and accurately as possible. All right. So, Uh, By the way, the the book up in the top, The Gift of Prophecy, uh, is is still in print. printed by, uh, published by Crossway. You can read Grudem's um, argument there, uh, which is very, very detailed. So I'm just going to give a sketch of it, all right? So the starting point for Grudem would be that um, the New Testament prophet is not the equivalent of an Old Testament prophet. The equivalent of the Old Testament prophet is the New Testament apostle. So if you were to to, to see it in a chart, you would have Old Testament prophet and not New Testament prophet, but New Testament apostle. And so they were the, the equivalent of each other, which means that a New Testament prophet is under a New Testament apostle, okay? Now, this is important for Grudem because uh, in, in, in Grudem's view, New Testament prophecy, this is very important, New Testament prophecy is not infallible, okay? In other words, New Testament prophecy can err. It can be wrong okay? And it doesn't mean that it's not prophecy. There's a, I, th- this might be a little challenging to wrap your head around because of the way that we think about this. So what, are, what is Grudem's uh, argumentation for uh, the fallibility of New Testament prophecy? Well, he would point, first of all, to two things, and I have them have up there. First of all, New Testament prophecy is to be judged. Okay. So if you remember back in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 29, that um, the prophets uh, or maybe the congregation are to pass judgment on the prophets, right? You remember that? Um, so what, what Grudem takes this to mean, so let me just read the passage to you one more time. What Grudem actually takes this to mean is that the fact that prophecy can be can be judged means that it can, can err. And if it can err, it doesn't mean the person's not really a prophet. It just means that the prophecy was in error. And so let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. And so Grudem says, passing judgment on a prophecy actually indicates, therefore, that it's not infallible. Then he he goes on and he points to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Don't forbid prophecy, right? Uh, Don't despise prophecy. Um, Test all things, hold fast to that which is good. And so he says, here's another example. So you've got prophecy, and what are you supposed to do with it? You're supposed to test it, all right? Now for him, what that means is, is your testing as to whether it's true or not, but it doesn't mean that it's not prophecy and the person who gave it is not a prophet. Okay? This, is, this is an important part of his argument. So number two, disobedience to New Testament prophecies is not sinful. And guess what passage he would use? Acts chapter 21 verse 4 where the disciples were begging Paul through the spirit not to go to Jerusalem and what Grudem would say is that those are those are prophecies those were prophecies coming from the disciples and Paul felt no um, compulsion to obey those prophecies okay now, i hope that i hope that you're thinking <laughs> all right um Acts twenty one thirteen and fourteen, Paul uh, Grudem points out that. Okay, so I said in in that passage, Agabus gives the prophecy. The disciples make an application of that prophecy, which is don't go to Jerusalem. Grudem and Storm see what the disciples are doing as not simply applying the prophecy, but actually as part of the prophecy itself. Don't go to Jerusalem. Paul feels free to ignore, disobey, in Grudem's view, that prophecy. So as a result, he would say prophecy is not authoritative either. So so in Grudem's view, you have this important idea of Prophecy is not authoritative, nor is it infallible. By the way, this is why Grudem as a complementarian would say that women were allowed to prophesy because it's not authoritative, like teaching the word is authoritative, all right? Um, so New Testament prophecy was not inerrant. Now on this, it's uh, sort of interesting, um, what is pointed out here so let me just read the this this verse again so agabus comes he says this is what the holy spirit says in this way the jews at jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the gentiles and uh they point out that that's not exactly what happened okay paul was not bound by the jews and then handed over to The Gentiles, that is the Romans, it's not exactly the way that it happened. In fact, if you realize what happens, um, the Romans kind of save Paul's skin from the Jews and then Paul appeals to Caesar and then is under uh, arrest from the Romans, all right? But he's not bound or anything like that um, uh, in in the way that it is said here, all right? Um, So turn over to Acts 2.20 real quick. I'm Acts 2.20, Uh, Ephesians 2.20. Grudem does not believe that there are apostles today, capital A apostles. And by the way, Grudem is very careful to want to try to protect the authority and sufficiency of scripture, unlike a lot of other people who argue for these gifts runs into a little problem in Ephesians 2.20. What's the church built on in Ephesians 2.20? Foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You do see that Grudem runs into a little problem. Can do you see what his problem would be? in Ephesians 2:20. So if prophets are can prophesy and it's not and it's not infallible and it's not authoritative and they can be wrong and they're under the apostles then how are they foundational? for the church so grudem and sort of cleverly i think not not in a malicious way but says the way that we should interpret ephesians 2:20 is like this the church is built on the foundation of the apostles who are prophets okay. he takes the kai there the the and as um as an, uh, in the of use, the apostles, even the prophets. That is, they're the same group, okay? you see what that does. That alleviates his, uh, the, the, the problem of having fallible, non-authoritative prophets being foundational to the church. Um, here's the problem. Chapter 3, verse 5. Does it seem that apostles and prophets are the same group in verse 5, or are those two different groups? In verse 5, they're, they're, they're most clearly two different groups. Okay? And it can't be talking about the Old Testament prophets, by the way, you can't, that, that would be a difficult appeal, Ephesians 2.20, for instance, Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, because he doesn't say prophets and apostles, he says apostles and prophets. Okay. Well, here in 3, five, it seems most certainly that you have two different groups um, made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, all right? So this is this is Grudem's view, and so here's the big question. So how does this work? What does this look like, right? So uh, this is uh, Sam Storm's little book, The Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts. And I'm just going to, out of fairness, just let Sam Storms, who's a wonderful Christian man, very fine teacher and theologian, I'm just going to let him give you a picture of what, this view of prophecy looks like. All right. So he says a simple definition would be that prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. Prophecy is the speaking forth in merely human words of something God has spontaneously brought to mind. Now, do you see what he did with the definition you have something that God brings to mind or something that God reveals, but as it's communicated, it's, it's a human report. Okay. By the way, that sets up a little later for how he views fallibility. So he goes on and he talks about uh, the, that we should pursue prophecy and stuff. And, and he says, the characteristic feature of this present church age Is the revelatory activity of the Spirit, dreams and visions, which form the basis for prophetic utterance. Okay? So, not all will be prophets, but it's possible that all may prophesy. So, he says, in this present age, based on what you see in Acts and so forth, um, this should be just a normal part of the church. And so, whether it's dreams or visions or however God communicates, people should be prophesying. All right? <clears throat> and so he uses a historical example that is uh, many people's favorite example, Charles Spurgeon. Okay. By the way, do you think Spurgeon believed that the apostolic gifts had ceased or continued? Spurgeon was very clear he believed the apostolic gifts had ceased, all right? So this makes them using him as an example all the uh, better. So Spurgeon is, um, is preaching, and the, he quotes Spurgeon himself, and I'll just read this to you because it's interesting. He says, while preaching in the hall on one occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and said, there is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker, He keeps his shop open on the, on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence and there was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. A city missionary, when going his rounds, met with this man and seeing that he was reading one of my sermons, he asked the question, do you know Mr. Spurgeon? Yes, replied the man. I have every reason to know him. I have been to hear him and under his preaching, and by God's grace, I have become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Shall I tell you how it happened? And then he repeats the story because he was the shoemaker. There's another story of Spurgeon where um. And he he tells it here, and this is um, uh, Spurgeon's preaching. And he stops and he points to the balcony. He says, "There's a young man in the balcony, and you have a pair of gloves in your coat pocket, and you stole those gloves on the way to church." Okay, and of course the man comes under conviction and is um, brought to salvation. All right. So Storms uses these as as examples. And so then he says, teaching's always based on a text of scripture. Prophecy is always based on a spontaneous revelation. Although rooted in revelation, prophecy is occasionally fallible. We must remember that every prophecy has three elements. Only one of which is assuredly of God. First, there is the revelation itself, the act of divine disclosure to a human recipient. The second element is the interpretation of what has been disclosed or the attempt to ascertain its meaning. The third, there is the application of the interpretation. God alone is responsible for the revelation. Whatever he discloses to the human mind is wholly free from error. It is as infallible as God is. It is true in all of its parts, completely devoid of falsehood. Indeed, the revelation, which is the root of every genuine prophetic utterance, is inerrant and infallible as the word of God is. So where's the problem? How do you get fallible prophecy? According to Storm's. Well, it's in the interpretation or the application of what God's revealed. Okay. So, uh, by the way, he actually he says here uh, a comparison with the gift of teaching should put your fear. To rest. So storms actually says. So you have a teacher, and the teacher comes to the text. Is the text infallible and inerrant? And the answer is yes. The text is infallible and inerrant. Is the teaching of that text infallible and inerrant? And the answer is no, because there is interpretation and application, which is which is um, could be wrong. Okay. Now, now we'll talk more about this <laughs> next week. I, I, I do hope you see that there's a, a, a fundamental difference here between the idea of prophecy and interpreting Scripture, okay? There's a, there's a big difference. We'll talk about that next week. So uh, he goes on and he, he, he points all of this out. And so, you know, like teaching prophecies based on a revelation, et etc., cetera, et cetera, all right, and um, so uh, let's see here. And then he talks about women prophesying and um, and why they should keep silent and so forth. And then he gives um, the purpose of prophetic utterances: uh, edify, exhort, and console. Prophetic utterances bring conviction uh, of uh, the sinner's heart. Uh, there is teaching. There is direction for ministry. And there's warnings and opportunities and uh, 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 in, in impartation of spiritual gifts and so forth. And so then he gives a series of cautions, and all of that's all fine and good. Let me just point those out quickly. First of all, avoid using prophecy to establish doctrines or practices that lack explicit biblical support. Uh, second, don't appeal to prophecy to set behavioral standards on secondary issues. The Lord told me you can't go to movies anymore. Third, avoid using prophecy to disclose negative or excessively critical information in public. Fourth, be careful before you yield uh, governmental authority in the church to those who have the gift of prophecy. By all means, listen to them, seek their counsel and insight, but remember, in other words, just because somebody says they're a prophet, don't make them an elder, okay? All right. So he goes on and he gives all of this fifth, be uh, cautious about excessive dependence on prophetic words for making routine daily decisions. Uh, storms will say, read your Bible, make informed biblical decisions. Don't just wait for a word from God all the time. So he gives some examples and, um, I'm going to give you an example from Storm's on what they view prophecy, and then an example from Grudem, and then we'll be done. So Storm says, uh, so there was a guy at, at one of our conferences who is well-known for having the gift of prophecy, being a prophet. And he was talking to uh, the, the congregation, and he said, um, uh, there's somebody that's supposed to go to such and such um, uh, mission field your name is uh uh margaret or whatever and uh this woman stands up and the guy says um i i see the number 202 does the number 202 mean anything to you and she says well, that that's my apartment number and so storm says so here was an act of prophecy the spirit revealed something to him and the 202 was just actually just God's um, confirmation to this woman that this was a word from God, all right? Um, Grudem has uh, interesting examples. Um, he and his wife go to pray for somebody who um, was, uh, was sick, and uh, they're going to pray for her. And uh, actually, she was hosting a Bible study. Her husband would, uh, was a construction worker. He'd come in late all the time during Bible study, go up, shower, eat dinner, then come in with like three minutes left, okay? And um, so she was. Uh, she had this rash and um, she'd been to dermatologists and stuff, couldn't get rid of the rash. And uh, Grudem and his wife... Uh, said, you know, can we pray for you? And she said, I'd I'd love for you to pray for me because I can't get rid of this rash. I've tried everything. And so they're about to go to prayer and uh, Grudem's wife, who's a wonderful, really wonderful Christian woman, says, um, before we pray, I I think that that the Holy Spirit wants me to ask you um, if you have bitterness in your heart, and the woman starts crying and, and says, yeah, my husband agreed to do this Bible study with me to host it, and um, he promised that he would help. And every single week, he comes in late and then goes out of his way to avoid everybody. And I've been so angry over these last three months, and uh, I've got a lot of bitterness in my heart towards him. And uh, uh, Grudem and his wife say, you know, we, we need to pray for you and you need to repent of that bitterness. And uh, as they did, then uh, she was healed. Okay. So prophecy in this, in this context is sort of s- spontaneous uh, promptings. Spontaneous promptings to say something that may be true. Uh, There are other people that that are so-called recognized prophets in this movement who will readily admit that they are, when they give predictions, that they are wrong half of the time. So nobody in in this group claims infallibility. But most of the time, when they're talking about prophecy, they're talking about being prompted to say something, prompted to, uh, based on, on what seems to be sort of a spontaneous uh, insight to something, all right? And so, that's the view of prophecy that is uh, very popular. Uh, Wayne Grudem has done, really done a great job of making it very popular, um, And so what we'll do next week is we'll go through, we'll evaluate Grudem's view and see if the scriptures actually stack up to to this idea. And then I'm going to tell you what I think the gift of prophecy was and if there's any relevance to it today. All right? So any questions before we, we... Close, Any prophecies? I looked at Ariel. She goes, what are you teaching on tonight? I said, the gift of prophecy. She goes, oh, I said, you're probably not going tonight, are you? Probably got something else to do. She goes, look at that. You've got the gift of prophecy. So, (laughs) all right, any questions? All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this time, and we pray, Lord, that you would Help us to have a good understanding of these things. We pray that you would, uh, Lord, help us to uh, fully and completely rely on your word, Lord, even uh, in the midst of so much craziness in the Christian world. We pray that you would help us to be men and women who say to the law and to the testimony, and if they do not speak according to these, it is because there is no light in them. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.